0: You ought to be asking yourself the question, if I'm buying a house, why am I not buying a small multifamily? You ought to have a compelling reason for that. And of course, that compelling reason ought not to be, I don't know a lot about it, or I don't know anyone that's done it, or I'm nervous about it. Those are not good reasons. And the opportunity cost of not buying so is so ridiculously high. Like I said, there's almost nothing you can do to spend less time and still raise your income by a third. And then you only have to live in the thing as an owner if you're getting a loan that requires you to be an owner of that you have to live there for 12 months, then move out. Move out and live where you or your spouse wants to live and you can rent out the other unit and continue to have that stream of passive income.
1: Welcome to the Journey to Multifamily Millions podcast. Start your journey today of building wealth through multifamily real estate investing. Listen to inspiring conversations with experts in the field from every step of the process. It doesn't matter if you're new to multifamily real estate or if you're already the savvy pro, we cover it all. And now your host, founder and CEO of Zana Investments, Tim Little.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Journey to Multifamily Millions. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Zana Investments, Tim Little. And on today's show, we have with us Alex Cartwright. Alex is a managing partner at Villicus Capital, where he is responsible for managing the firm's strategy, market analysis, and underwriting. He has completed dozens of multifamily real estate transactions and has overseen dozens of complex rehab projects. Alex is also associate professor of economics and chair of the management department at Ferris State University, where he teaches classes on managerial economics, economic growth, and international business. Alex, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Tim.
0: Great to join everybody else that's looking to make millions in multifamily.
2: Yeah, and we're excited to have you. You have a really interesting background. Now I'm ready to dig into it. I gave everyone a high-level overview of your background but on this, yeah. i really like to get into the details of how you got started on your journey. So please yeah. take us back to the beginning and tell us how you got to where you are today.
0: I'll take you way, way back. When I first started, wanted to buy real estate, I was inspired because I went to graduate school at George Mason University, which is right outside Washington, D.C., and it's very expensive. And as a graduate student, they don't pay you a lot of money. And so just running the numbers on what it costs to rent versus buy, and I was blown away at how profitable it was to buy something and then rent it out by the room. And that really got me thinking about how you could buy something divided into different pieces, and increase its value. So of course, as a young 20-year-old that was not making very much money and was a full-time graduate student, the bank didn't have enough faith in me. And despite my best efforts, I couldn't find a house in Metro Washington, D.C., where the numbers were that the bank would also approve me for. But I took this idea buying something, not just renting it out, but buying something, cutting it up into new pieces or new property rights and renting it out. And this was back in around 2012, 13, 14, when Uber was really becoming big for the first time. And there were a lot of lawsuits going back and forth about whether it was legal. And so I had this idea that if I could buy a house, rent out the bedrooms and make money that way, perhaps I could buy cars and rent them to uber drivers and so i thought maybe people want to drive for uber part-time other students or people that don't have cars or people that don't have a hybrid they don't have a uber approved car or they don't want to use their own car whatever the story is and so i came up with this model where you could come and pick up one of my cars and you and i didn't charge by the mile or by the hour i took a percentage of the earnings and i released out a lot of spaces and a parking garage in a pretty central location of downtown DC so that people could take public transport to pick up the cars. And then they could drive them for Uber, fill them up with gas and put them back when they were done. I developed a website and some other stops that automated the logistics of the renting. And cars are not as good of an investment as real estate, namely because they depreciate, right? Like the value of every car is essentially going to zero unless you're lucky enough to have stumbled upon a collector car, especially cars that are getting 50,000 miles a year put on them. But still, when I was, I felt like a genius because I took my 10 and $12,000 Toyotas that cost two to $300 a month and rented them out for what was the equivalent of around $100 a day. And of course that was spread out to a couple different drivers. And they were on the, the cars were on the road all the time. But in the back of my mind, I was always thinking about real estate investing. And in order to make money while I was going to school, I did a lot of Uber driving myself and did around 4,000 trips as an Uber driver. I took people to Air Force One. I got mugged a couple of times. People did drugs in the car. I got stories that are so wild that if you didn't believe me, I wouldn't blame you. And and at one point, I, I had about a dozen cars going on Uber. and But it, it, it was a tough business. It was not passive income. However, that helped me go to school, get my degree and save money that I ultimately needed to make the jump into multifamily. And so like a lot of people, I started off with a house hack when I was younger and got my first job. And I strongly recommend that to people that are young and are interested in multifamily. Now that's it's not for everyone, but your lifestyle is most flexible when you're young. And so we can talk about why I think that's just darn near the best move you can make. Let me just sidetrack there for one second. If you're young and you're a little hesitant about that, think of it this way. You're, you're, most people's housing costs around a third of their income every month. Whereas if you can make your housing a zero by buying a duplex or a fourplex and living in one unit and renting out all the others to pay for the mortgage, you're effectively raising your income by a third. And there's almost nothing else that you can do to raise your income by a third where you don't have to give away more of your time. I don't know that the return on most graduate schools is as high as buying a small multifamily with an FHA loan. And then you kind of get to be a landlord with trading wheels. A lot of people get started that way. But I understand some people are older. They have a family. They have to live in a market where that doesn't make sense. But if it can work out for you, you really got to think about the opportunity cost of not doing it. I got started that way and bought another multifamily and another multifamily. And soon I had a couple dozen. And I had a lot of people that wanted to place capital with me to deploy into multifamily. And I just over overseeing different rehab projects, et cetera, my knowledge was growing. And it's not my, it wasn't my intention to be in real estate full-time, got a very rewarding job as an economics professor and get to impact young people's lives every day. But I, then I had the opportunity to be a consultant with Open Door Capital, which you may have heard of that they own a lot of mobile home parks that I think they're one of the biggest holders of mobile home parks in the United States. And learned a lot about that business and got to see a little bit of the inside of what it's like to raise money, partner with other people that have capital to contribute and go out and be able to buy bigger properties. So I got interested in that and raised money to buy bigger multifamily. And for the last year and a half, I've been focused on looking for hotels that are either extended stay hotels, meaning They've got kitchens set up in every room, a little bit bigger rooms, or they're hotels that are struggling financially and converting those into workforce housing. And uh, index card summary on that is it's very hard to build workforce housing at a price to make sense. Almost everybody is at a point in life when they need an $8,000 a month apartment in a major city. Demand for that's going to exist in every macroeconomic environment from now until forever. And hotels can be purchased at significant discount compared to multifamily. And so we're able to buy these things very cheaply. And once they're stabilized, you can refinance them or sell them for significantly more money. So they're buying something where in a market where they can't be built, not that it's not allowed, just that it's not profitable to build them and serving a segment of the market that others are not able to serve. And over the last year and a half, I've decided that's where I'm going to so I've been focusing on building a brand now, learning everything that I could about hotel conversions and trying to be disciplined about only doing hotel conversion deals.
2: No. That is awesome and so much to unpack there. So I want to start I I really respect and admire your your entrepreneurial zeal when you were in grad school. To to think of doing that and making the connection to the Uber cars and just having the forethought to build all that out, because I, I have to imagine, like you said, it wasn't exactly passive and you had to build the systems and everything else to track it, make sure people weren't just driving off with your cars and That's right. It
0: happened. It happened. And I tell you what was a real pain in the butt is where they have these red light cameras or speeding cameras where people would get tickets in the car all the time. And I'd have to go and figure out who was responsible for what ticket and charge them and pay all the tickets. And it it absolutely made money, but there was a lot of administration. And of course, this cars would inevitably get in fender benders. And thank goodness, nobody ever got hurt. But then Car was off the road, you have to get it repaired and that could happen at any hour of the day and I needed to be present whenever a car got hurt and or somebody got hurt and the cars needed constant maintenance and they needed to be cleaned and it's not like they're always in the same place, right? They're mobile. Flat tires and breakdowns, right? These kind of things could happen anywhere. I had cars in Philadelphia and Baltimore and in Washington, D.C. It's kind of a big a geographic area where I'd have to go and track down the cars sometime. But that's, you're right in that it's like any business where there are parts of it that are not passive. They're active. And even lots of parts of real estate are active. They require very careful, diligent, intentional management. And the best thing that you can do is to build systems so that you can scale.
2: I was about to say, that's, that's the only way you can be successful in something, especially like the model you were talking about because you're gonna Mm -hmm. run into these obstacles and you're like, okay, how do I fix that for next time? How do I Mm -hmm. track that to prevent it in the future? And it's just by building Mm -hmm. out those systems that you're able to do that and be successful. And Mm -hmm. I I really appreciate that you were an Uber driver for as long (laughs) as you were. To do 4,000 trips, it gives you keen insight into the business you're running. If you were doing it at the same time, I would imagine. That's right. Parts of it were very difficult, but parts of it were
0: rewarding. I would say that the exciting part was to just get in the car and not know where you were going to end up. And so I liked being able to see different neighborhoods and talk to different people, learn different things. That kind of un- adventurous aspect of it was exciting. So I've definitely driven over, I think, about 4,000 trips on Uber and maybe 1,500 or so on Lyft, which there are plenty of people out there with more trips. That's not nothing. All night long, Friday and Saturday, every weekend for almost two years, i have been up and down every street in baltimore and almost every street in the metro washington dc area and and it's humbling because you see how people of different walks of life treat you as a driver and they don't know your background and then you also get to see the challenges that people all kinds of walks of life are facing when somebody gets in a uber car as you can imagine they figure that they're not gonna see the driver ever again. And they're very likely correct in that. And so they reveal a lot of personal stuff, usually about the challenges that they're facing. And some of it I definitely wish people would have kept to themselves. Like I, I remember one lady getting in the car and telling me about all this stuff she just shoplifted from Target, where I picked her up and what a high she got off of it, how she's addicted to shoplifting and different people with drug problems, etc. But it became a motivation in a sense. It's where I really started to learn and see just how much housing, the quality of housing, the location of housing, or the cost of housing impacts somebody's day-to-day life and impacts their family. And it was obviously difficult for me to pay for rent in expensive Northern Virginia as a grad school student. And, and I watched a lot of other people that were struggling to go to work and pay to live in an expensive environment like that and that and that's what the, one of the things that made me interested in providing affordable housing and I'll tell you that like when I talk to people about hotel conversions a lot of people immediately say something like I'm not very excited about that because they're not in sexy buildings with Swimming pools. Some of them do have pools, but with really high class amenities and fancy kitchens, etc. And really, what some people that I that are potential investors say is something along the lines of, "I can't brag to my friends about being invested in a hotel conversion, so I'm not really interested in putting money in one, or I can I don't see myself living there, but I'm hanging out as an Uber driver around a lot of people of very." Limited income really taught me how the difference between a seven hundred dollar a month rent and a thousand or eleven hundred dollar a month rent for somebody that's making twenty five to thirty five grand a year um that's huge and and there aren't places essentially in most major cities quality places where they could live for seven eight hundred dollars and just because it's not ideal to live in a small space like a hotel room it's not. That doesn't mean that it's not a valuable product and doesn't mean there's not a ton of demand out there for it, even though it's maybe not the prettiest thing. That doesn't mean that it's not needed and it's profitable.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes investors get hung up on this idea of a trophy investment, but you know that trophy investment that Class A with all the amenities is not going to do nearly as much good from a societal perspective as the kind of thing that you're talking about. Because as you discussed before, there are disincentives for building workforce housing, right? It's, it's mm. just not economically feasible based on the, right. the cost of all the materials, et cetera. It's not that people right. want to, it's that they can't. Right. You know, That's right. Is that they, and think, so think of it this way. It's, and when we
0: say they can, sometimes I say that language and I feel like people are confused. It's not like there's some law against it. But think of it this way. Say you're building a new multifamily. The shingles that you're putting on the roof cost the same, whether you're building A class or B class or C class. And the window, I don't know if maybe you put a little bit higher grade window in A class, something bigger, fancier, but it doesn't cost that much more than the B class or C class. But really think of it this way. It doesn't cost you any less money to hire an electrician to come out and run wire for, let's say, recessed lights in the ceiling because it's workforce housing versus a class house. It doesn't cost any less money to hire the plumber to install the $100 sink faucet, kitchen sink, instead of the $250 kitchen sink faucet, right? There are a lot of these fixed costs in construction like labor, land, et cetera, that are the same whether you buy whether you build workforce housing or you build a class more luxury oriented housing and the luxury oriented housing is valued highly by the market right now where the way the interest rates are and folks not being able to buy starter homes as much that pushes more people into the rental market but we get this trickle down effect in the rental market where Fewer people buying new homes, like starter homes, young people, that pushes them more into the rental market, right? And you got the average income of a renter is now higher than ever. You got more millionaire renters than ever before. More people earning over 200,000 renting than ever before in the history of the United States. More people in A-class That pushes the people that were in A class down into the B class, the rents rise. And the people that were in the B, when the B class are pushed into the C class, the C class space is totally crowded. And that is exactly the space where the supply is not expanding and there is the most demand. That's exactly the space where I want to be as an investor.
2: Yeah, exactly. And just to your point about how where you live can impact... And stuff like that. I could attest as I lived in DC as my first job after grad school. And Dang. we chose to buy because we were at that time childless couple in our 20s slash 30s. And we wanted something that was affordable for us. We didn't want to have to stretch. So we're looking at Northern Virginia and it was like 100, 150,000 more there than some of the places that that we were looking at and so we wound up moving east of the river. If that means anything to you, that the Castia mm-hmm. River, mm-hmm. because it's both a, a literal and mental border, like a place that many people just will not live. And we were willing to live there and we were rewarded with a nice brick row house for significantly less than say a mile away in Eastern sure. or other areas. Sure. And. One of the things we noticed is taxis would not take us home. We would mm. go have fun out in town, whatever. Before we had kids, yeah, we could take public transportation home. Maybe we don't feel like taking the bus that day, whatever. But if we tried to get a taxi, we would tell them where we were going, and it was a no. Mm. And, and so we literally were not able to get rides home sometimes. Uber was the only way that we could get home in those scenarios. So it's a real thing mm. that people don't mm. even want to deal with certain parts of the city. Just based mm-hmm. on their assumptions associations etc the next thing i wanted to move to was the house hacking because i think it's a, an important point to, to hit again mm-hmm. we talked about how for that certain time in your life where you're young and unencumbered and everything else if you mm-hmm. have the means by which to buy a house then look at getting a duplex triplex whatever you can get because it'll yeah. actually put you in a better economic situation Hey, Tim here. Now, you know, I don't have any ads on my podcast. I try to focus on having the best guests on the show and squeezing as many valuable insights as I can from each one. But I also want to make sure as many people as possible benefit. And that's where I need your help. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five star rating and review on Apple podcasts and Spotify. It really goes a long way toward getting it in front of others. Thank you so much. And now back to the show. Then
0: 100%, you ought to be asking yourself the question, if I'm buying a house, why am I not buying a small multifamily? You ought to have a compelling reason for that. And of course, that compelling reason ought not to be, I don't know a lot about it, or I don't know anyone that's done it, or I'm nervous about it. Those are not good reasons. And the opportunity cost of not buying so is so ridiculously high. Like I said, there's almost nothing you can do to spend less time and still raise your income by a third. And then you only have to live in the thing as an owner. If you're getting a loan that requires you to be an owner, you have to live there for 12 months, then move out, move out and live where you or your spouse wants to live. And you can rent out the other unit and continue to have that stream of passive income. The other thing with the house hack, just to think about it, to get an FHA loan, you put down three and a half percent. Let's say we're talking about a $200,000 duplex for easy math. That means that you have got to put down $7,000. This is not some thing that everybody can save up or find a way to get $7,000 for this down payment. $7,000. Now, we don't bet on appreciation as real estate investors. We certainly hope that it happens, that the properties go up in value, and we try to account for that by buying things that are irreplaceable in phenomenal markets and that offer something that other properties don't offer, and markets that where we think there's a compelling reason for the growth, economic growth to continue. But we don't bet on it. However, Is it very likely that the house will appreciate 3.5% over one year or 3.5% over two years? That's 3.5% over two years. That's less than 2% appreciation a year. Is that pretty likely? I would say yes. Long-run inflation is higher than 2% a year and inflation right now is around 6%. But if you could appreciate at just 3.5% in one year, that's $7,000. You will have gotten it. Your entire down payment back, you will own the house for free after one year and you will have lived there for free. Think about what that has done. And of course, you would have paid down the mortgage and all these other things. Think about what that does for your ability to put money into other investments or what that does to your, your mental well being, knowing that you, no matter what happens to you, your housing is covered. You don't have to worry about how you're going to pay the rent because you've got this other income to take care of you. I'll tell you what's disappointing to me about this, as I think this is the best investment available to young people today. And I encourage, I teach maybe, I would say around two to 300 students per semester, depending on what I'm teaching, the size of the classes, it varies. And that's across all my classes. And and I always love to teach like the 200 level introduction to economics. I want to be their first taste to economics and encourage people to be economics majors. And I'm, I always talk to them about opportunity costs, thinking putting dollars on opportunities missed out. There is a cost to buying a single family house. There may not be a price to it. And you might not have to write a check every month for those lost opportunities of not having a duplex, but just because you're ignorant to some opportunity doesn't mean that the costs aren't real. So uh, we talk, I talked to them about that and I talked to them about house hacking and walk through some examples, especially at the end of the semester. And I think that after doing this for maybe m- really pushing house hacking to all my students at the end of the semester, people that are just about to graduate, I can think of two, maybe three people that have done it over four years. And that's four to 500 students a year. Everybody's got some brothers, sisters, uncles, cousins, friend that one time owned a rental property. And I don't know, the tenant didn't pay or the toilet broke or something and it stressed them out. And therefore their parents or their friends, somebody else told them it wasn't a good idea. Or it's just, or they think that doing a house, buying a small multifamily is difficult. And they make, I think a lot of people make that assumption just because it's not common or it's not as familiar. That doesn't mean that it's more difficult or it's not a good idea. So this is something that if you're a young person, you need to educate yourself on it. There are a lot of ph- phenomenal books out there on house hacking. And it, whether you go through it or not, like at least make a very informed decision about why you're not doing it because it's a phenomenal opportunity.
2: You're right. And it just puts you so much further ahead on your financial journey very early. you know Mm -hmm. just starting out, it can make a huge difference. And the only thing that I'll add to it, you talked a lot about the FHA, which is great, because it always surprises me how many people don't know about FHA. They just blindly (laughs) that they'll have to put 20% down for a house. Mm -hmm. I have literally never done for my residents anyways. But also for the military veterans out there like myself, They have Mm a VA loan at their disposal, and you absolutely can get up to a quadplex. using Mm -hmm. A lot of people, Mm -hmm. again, think it's hard or it's complicated. Oh, because it's the VA loan, so you can't possibly get anything other than single family. Not true. As long as you can find it, qualify for it. And one thing, I I don't know if you mentioned it, was sometimes you can get the income from the other units to help you qualify. Yeah, yeah. which removes right. almost all the obstacles at that
0: point. I know, so I know so many people. I've even had people working for me in a very entry level position, making let's say around forty grand a year, entry level salary, and they're able to qualify for four hundred plus thousand dollar quadplexes with four units, and that's because they're able to count the income from the other three units that they will not occupy as an owner. They're able to count that as their income to qualify for the property. And the way it works, at least in my market, I don't think it's much different around the country is with FHA, they take 85% of the market rents or whatever the property is currently leased for. So Whatever your, whatever, say you had a quadplex just for easy math, you had three units rented for a $1,000, you're going to take 85% of that $3,000 and add it right to your income, which of course moves up your debt to income or moves down rather your debt to income ratio allows you to qualify for more. And so you can literally buy more house going this way. And uh, that brings up a double-edged sword though, when you're shopping for this and not to get too far in the weeds. So- when you're shopping for your first multifamily, there's there, there are trade-offs, if you will, to buying one as tenants in it, very buying buying one with some units that aren't occupied. The upside to having the tenants placed already is you got that cash flow on day one. Of course, these are tenants that are paying on time, et cetera. Now, they, you've got the cash flow on day one, and you are able to use that income, their income, 85% of their income to qualify for the mortgage. Whereas if the units are vacant, it becomes a little harder to use the potential income to qualify for the mortgage. And sometimes what they'll do is the appraiser will come out and put a suggested rental amount. The bank will take 85% of that. However, it's usually pretty low because or it's a below market rent that they assume because of course it's gonna take you some time to find the tenant, get them placed and get them paying. But of course the upside of buying property with some vacant units is you get to pick the tenants and you get to charge what you want. Sometimes the rent, you may be locked into a lease that is too low as a new owner, be locked into a rental amount that's below the market. With the four unit, you just get more flexibility. Maybe some units are vacant, maybe some are occupied, the best of both worlds. But with the two unit, ideally, you look for one that's got one unit lease on month to month. So you got the income immediately when you close, but if you want to raise the rent or boot the tenant to do some remodeling, you can do it. One, yeah. more, one more thing on the FHA loan that I'll dispel. Some people think if I'm buying as an owner, I can't buy a multifamily if all the units are occupied. Not true. You have to occupy the unit with, you have to occupy at least one unit within 60 days of closing. You've just got to You got to figure out a way to get in one of the units within 60 days. And that means that if everybody's got leases that last more than 60, that don't expire 60 days post-closing, you've got to find some way to negotiate getting one unit vacant with the seller. Maybe you can pay someone to end their lease early. And actually, you'd be surprised how many people just want to get out of their lease. Maybe they want to move, et cetera, and they just know that the landlord's not open to it. So you can just ask, hey, we we want, we need to be able to live in one of these within 60 days. Is anybody interested in moving? Or can we pay somebody effectively one or two months rent if they move after 60 days? That way you can occupy one of them.
2: Yeah, and there were some definitely hot actionable tips in there. So hopefully people are paying attention to that when they're considering house hacking. I do want to move on to the conversions, though, because I, I have some questions mm. there. Hotel conversions great. Are some, yeah, it's something that I've looked at. I think we even looked at a property and it just didn't make sense. They don't all make sense. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you hit on, I think is really important because it answered one of my questions, which is you talked about how you prefer the extended stay type hotels. And yeah. I imagine that's because one, they are a little larger. Right. It's not like two hundred square feet. It might be a little bigger than that. And then you also have what you talked about kitchen already built into it, which is not normal in a regular hotel room, but for those extended stays, it's very normal. It's standard. And and that yep. And that reduces one of the what I see as one of the biggest obstacles to conversions of hotels because having to put in everything associated with kitchens, one, and also finding the space to put them in, which is a challenge in those smaller units that don't already have them. Can you talk about that? Yeah,
0: sure. So I'm just to tell you a little bit about this. Tim, you hit on two of the three big obstacles in hotel conversions. Here are the three obstacles. One, you got to find the property that makes sense in terms of its physical attributes. So that meaning it's either got kitchens or it's set up in a way that where it's going to be easy to run new wires for additional electrical service or run the drains for kitchen sinks and the rooms are big enough for for somebody to want to occupy even though at the right price right 200 square foot room is there's absolutely demand for it and so one the property itself you gotta find it two the which you started to point out you gotta find the the market where this makes sense right where the numbers work it's like any real estate strategy the numbers don't work for every property in every market And then three, you've got to find a municipality, meaning a city, a local government that is amicable to allowing some kind of zoning change or use modification so that you can take a hospitality property and start operating it as a multifamily. And that zoning change is very important. Let me just focus on that for a second. When we say conversion from hotel multifamily, not just talking about a physical conversion where we're going in and adding units, or I'm sorry, adding kitchens to the units, and sometimes we are adding here. We're also talking about a financial conversion. Once the illegal conversion, once the building is rezoned or re-entitled or the use is changed from hospitality to multifamily, now that building is valued like an apartment and not a hotel. And guess what? apartments are much more valuable than hotels for a lot of reasons. The big two are number one, the income is more durable, right? You get paid every month. You don't have to search for new customers every night. And number two, apartments can get Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae debt. They can get the best mortgage terms because the government wants to ensure that there's a supply of apartments. And so they push out hundreds of billions of dollars in these federally backed loans each year. Why are those things relevant? Because the cap rate or the value placed on a dollar of income in a multifamily is almost 2X, sometimes 3X as valuable as income that you get from a hotel. So whereas $1 of hotel income might get multiplied by five to seven, a dollar of multifamily income might get multiplied between 15 and 20. Even if you're pulling in less dollars in revenue as a multifamily, which usually you're not, at post-conversion, usually you're not pulling in less dollars. But even if you were pulling in fewer dollars, those dollars are more valuable because they're coming from a multifamily asset. They get multiplied by a larger multiplier, a lower cap rate. And so when you do the conversion, the big benefit is we're taking advantage of that cap rate compression, like a cap rate arbitrage, if you will. We're buying at a high cap rate as a hotel, and we're stabilizing the property, and then either refinancing or exiting at a significantly lower multifamily cap rate. And what that cap rate compression spells out for investors is it's not just big upside, but also limited downside As people that are buying just regular multifamily. We hope that cap rates don't rise, but when you're buying a hotel, even if multifamily cap rates rise, guess what? You're buy- they're still going to be lower than hotel cap rates. So you're always buying something where the cap rate is going to fall. So hence that limited downside makes these things a lot lower risk. And we're in a market where you can't build more You can't build more C-class housing. And hence, so there's limited supply and a lot of demand. But let me talk about the extended stay. Just one more comment on that. I know I'm going on and I'm sure you have another question, but a lot of people out there want the extended stays. And so they're hard to find. And the values of the extended stays have really gone up quite a bit as people can't find a multifamily to put their money in. And so they go and they purchase an extended stay. There are deals out there. I'm of the three deals I'm working on right now. One is two are extended stay properties and one is not. And so the rule that I follow is just run the numbers. Just are adding kitchens complicated and could it be expensive? Yes, but just see if it makes sense. When you're buying something at $20,000 per unit, adding a $10,000 kitchen makes sense, especially if you're in a market where, a C-class apartment is selling for 120 to 150,000 per unit. So we just, all of these things, all of these things are fundamentally empirical questions, meaning just sit down and see what the numbers tell you. When I first heard of hotel conversion, I thought, what a huge pain in the butt. You have to go negotiate with the city. You have to potentially add these kitchens Maybe you have to get the franchise removed from the hotel. You got to figure out how to lease all these units up. Yeah, is that there's more to learn than just a standard apartment deal, right? But then I just sat down and I put a price on all those problems. Kind of like when you go and see an ugly house, you don't say, oh my gosh, this house is ugly, it needs too much work. You only know it needs too much work until you run the numbers. And so I started learning how to really accurately put those numbers on these hotel deals. And you know what I discovered these problems are worth figuring out because you can buy these hotels so cheaply and because they're in usually phenomenal location hotels are in locations close to major employment centers and retail hotels have got great amenities and you can buy these things so cheap compared to other multifamily and of course like we've mentioned before there's so much demand for workforce housing so you're right a lot of moving parts but then you run the numbers on it but then it's these problems are usually worth solving.
2: Yeah. And when you're talking about units that are this small, I don't know if we categorize them as efficiencies. That's usually when- it doesn't make, I never really found that it makes sense to decrease the
0: unit count at hotels. They call them doors or keys. It never makes sense to decrease the key count just because you're never really getting a two bedroom that rents at twice the price of a one bedroom or a a big one bedroom that rents at twice the price of an efficiency. It's market dependent. There are some reasons you might do that. I think the most compelling reason would be that you had a very large hotel, like 250 units. Maybe you would cut those, cut the number of units down just because it would take a long time to lease out 250 units. And so maybe you'd get some bigger units just to lease them out faster. But generally, it doesn't make sense to expand the unit sizes and have a lower number of rooms in the hotel.
2: And like you said, it's based on market demands. So as long as you know the demand is there for those smaller units, then that deal is going to make sense. I guess my question would be, where do you find that you usually find deals that, that make sense and that, that demand is there for those really small units? Is that mostly in urban areas in cities or like right on the outskirts of cities?
0: They are in cities, the outskirts of cities for sure. It's almost everywhere because like I'm looking at, I'm looking at just for example, I'll give you some numbers. So like I've got pro rents on different projects, anywhere from $650 a unit to $850 a unit. That includes like access to internet and cable, which by the way, the hotel's already wired up for. Usually we buy these things with furniture. We can turn around and offer a furnishing package. And there's nothing else in those markets. People can't live in trailer parks for that kind of money per month. I know some places, even in Detroit, where the lot rent, meaning just the land, is $600 a month, much less the payment on your trailer if you don't own it. And so there's just nothing that can touch these things in terms of price. And and therefore, there's demand for that kind of price point everywhere. Because like I said, the people that are earning 30, 40, 50 grand a year, not quite 50 grand a year, the difference between twelve hundred dollars and six or seven hundred is a big deal to them. It's a big deal to them. Recent graduates, even these are not just like necessarily lower income people that are struggling in life. People that recently graduated that don't want to have roommates and want to live on their own in a clean, nice, highly amenitized place. It's got a nice gym, nice pool, nice common areas, co working spaces in the common areas got the internet included. They can walk in and there's furnishings there if they want them for a few more dollars. There's demand for that in every major city. So like a couple deals that I'm working on right now are in Houston and our pro forma rents are around $800. And those are in neighborhoods where the studios are anywhere from upper 900s to low 1000s. All right.
2: And so Talk to me about the zoning changes. I think anyone who's had to deal with either like city or county governments know that it could sometimes be a slow and frustrating process. I want to hear what your experience has been and what some of the timelines for that look like.
0: So we don't close on any property where unless we're, we have assurances that we can use it as a multifamily. This is rule number one. If I got a really good deal on a hotel, we would consider it, but it it would be a hotel investment at this point. It wouldn't be a multifamily investment. And so the way we navigate that is usually to work with an architect or someone that has a relationship with the city. Sometimes a broker, it's had a relationship with the city, doing different things and getting zoning and entitlement changes done so that they can help us establish those relationships and make sure that process goes through smoothly. And you can find architectural firms that have done this before. And so we work with firms that have done this before, but in some towns they've never seen this kind of thing and therefore they don't have a process for it. However, you go to these towns or these municipalities, and I always look at their master plan or their zoning plan or the city strategic goals. These are documents that are on the websites. And I look for terms like workforce housing, affordable housing, or the term adaptive reuse. Adaptive reuse, that's another term for conversion. And if I see in the strategic plan that the city wants to create more affordable housing, then I know I can go to them and say, hey, guys, wouldn't you like to be able to greenlight something that, supplements your goals and your strategic plan that says you're getting toward your goals. And by the way, I'm not asking for any kind of special tax rebate or subsidy, et cetera. Like I'm a free market kind of guy, right? I'm an economics professor. I want to create more affordable housing without tax credits and government handouts. This is pure capitalism. Will you give us permission to create more affordable housing? It doesn't cost you anything. They're very open to that. And if they're not, then you just can't do the deal. However, there are these conversion projects. It's not like there are hundreds and hundreds of them, but this has certainly been done, especially since COVID, this is being done more and more. And there are cities that have processes for them. I know, for example, in Denver, if you have a hotel within a certain zone, within different zones of the city where they need more affordable housing, there is a fast track for them to get the use change permits for you. And so I expect other cities to follow suit. And as you go to these different conferences, like the different big multifamily industry conferences, I see more and more sessions on adaptive reuse. And at the National Multifamily Housing Council, I see growing number of time given to adaptive reuse every year they have that conference. And so this is a trend that's going to catch on and city governments are going to catch up to it.
2: Yeah, and to that point, you just have my gears turning. As you're talking about the process that you go through with this and some of the reasons why it makes sense, it has me thinking about office and how office is in a very compromising position right now. Yes, yes. And what the potential is there and what the differences are, because I'm sure you've looked at it or considered it, to the hotel conversions with office conversions, how they are similar, how they're different. And is it feasible? Does it make sense?
0: Okay, so and I can tell you what little I know about office conversion. I'm not an expert on that, and I'm I try to not fall victim to the shiny object syndrome and <laughs> stay focused on hotels. Here I have a couple challenges with office. Office, a lot of times they're out in office parks, far away from amenities, close to other office buildings. It's not really an environment where people could live. Even and this is true for hotels too. Like sometimes there are great deals on hotels, but they're essentially in the parking lot of a shopping center, or they might be too close to an interstate or something. And it just doesn't look like an environment where people would want to live. And that tends to be a little more true of office, at least more suburban offices. The other thing with office is you've got buildings have a lot of interior space, meaning they're very deep. You got windows around the perimeter of the building, and there's a lot of floor space that's very far away from the windows. Which means it's hard to design unit where all of the units get window space. You end up with kind of long, narrow units. And if you don't have a lot of window space, this limits the number of bedrooms that you can put in for each unit. You got to have the office building that makes sense. It's usually a smaller office building. The upside of the office building is like you said, they can be purchased cheaply, even though you got to have the office totally vacant though. Like, it's easy to vacate a hotel. You just don't accept any more reservations. (laughs) Offices, there may be long-term leases that are expensive to break, but it's a problem you put a price on. And the good thing with offices, usually they're open, not a lot of walls, easy to run plumbing and electrical. And so it can be done, but just the architecture of the building, like I said, where you got a lot of windows on the perimeter and a lot of floor space that's far away from the windows, that makes the design of it more complicated. And that requires more construction. And construction's expensive, not just in terms of time and money, but the unknown, right? The unknown that's involved. And there's sometimes more unknown there than with the hotels. So I'm focused on hotels right now. But from the people I've talked to that are experts in office conversion, the rule of thumb is, and again, just a rule of thumb. So it's imperfect. If you find office building that can be purchased less than $22 a square foot. And it's in a location where people wanna live. Okay, now we're, those are numbers where a conversion probably makes sense. That's not most office buildings at this time.
2: Yeah, no, I appreciate that that insight. It just gives us some good perspective on these different asset types uh, as we're mm-hmm. talking through it. This has been some awesome conversation on the conversion side and it's something that I don't think I've had the opportunity to talk about on the show. So I know it's gonna be some great value for the listeners. We do need to get on to the turbo roundup. So be you ready for that? Okay, I'm ready. All right, first question. What is one red flag every investor should look out for? One, I'm gonna offer, I know you said
0: one. I was, okay, let me, here's one. Look at their website when you're looking, is this a property red flag or like an, a red flag when you are trying to, when you put in capital with somebody else? Sorry to ask that for that clarification
2: no i'd say it's a red flag for anyone who's thinking of investing okay take it from there
0: okay if you're looking to put capital with somebody else make sure that it's a mission driven company there are a lot of companies out there they say they're mission driven because it's a buzzword here's why that's important even i would say maybe not until the last 18 24 months was i completely convinced that this was essential but it is. That's why you want a mission-driven company. There are going to be moments with every investment and just at some point, there are going to be moments where stuff does not go according to plan, where you are thrown a curveball, and where it is, it's stressful and owning and operating the property is a pain in the butt. And when it is a pain in the butt, you've got to wonder what is going to keep the person that is managing my capital motivated do a good job for me. It's easy for them to be motivated and optimistic and full of energy when things are going great. But what about when things are going poorly? They've got to have a mission that's going to keep them motivated to keep working on the days where things are not going well. And that mission cannot just be to make money, because as soon as things don't go well, there are other things that the manager can go and do to make money. There's other things the company could go and do. Those may not be in the best interest of their investors. And so I'm really proud that our mission is to create more affordable housing. We wanna create 10,000 units of affordable housing over the next five years. And I'm, I'm energized by that mission when I get up in the morning, because I think that hotel conversions are the best way to do it. I think that I, I a lot of people see how expensive their rent is and they think this free market stuff, this capitalism, this is stacks the death against the little guy. It's hard for me to save. It's hard for me to get ahead when my rent is so expensive. And I think that with hotel conversions, we can give people a more affordable, high quality place to live that'll allow them to save and that'll allow them to have more autonomy and financial freedom in their own lives, have a higher quality life. I'm encouraged by that. And I'm encouraged by not having to ask any government or somebody for a subsidy in order to do that. There's nobody else, there's no other model that I'm aware of where they're creating more affordable housing without taking tax dollars, which is essentially just taking money from somebody else to do it. So you wanna look for somebody that has a mission, that is gonna keep them motivated, keep them doing the right thing, keep them executing the plan they said they're gonna execute even when things are not going according to plan.
2: Yeah, I think that's awesome because it just reinforces the alignment of interest with the investor, not just from the their financial goals, but also of their values. If they have aligned values with that operator, it's going to make mm-hmm. a difference. All mm-hmm. right. Second question. What is a myth about this business that you would like to set straight? I
0: think a myth is that you should just buy and hold and just never sell. Just buy and close your eyes and hold. I think that violates that. Just we want to always be running the numbers on all the decisions that we make. And we want to get really confident in running the numbers. That way, we don't have to follow these guidelines or these general principles. And there are times when it makes sense to sell, there are times when it makes sense to change into a new property. And I would love to always be buying, but. If the numbers make sense, it can be productive to pause. You don't always have to be buying. You don't always have to be holding.
2: Yeah, and I think there was no better time to prove your point than during the pandemic when returns shot up so quickly that a lot of operators weren't even expecting it. These five-year holds turned into three, and in some cases, two-year holds, because they were actually hitting the numbers. And so it was in the best interest for the investors to say, hey, I I know we said we were going to hold it for five years, but if you could have that same money in two, that's better for you. So absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so third question, what does success look like to you? Success is when we're living out the values
0: that underline our mission. When we're achieving our mission and we're doing it by living out the values that are important to us and so when we're success looks like creating more affordable housing and using that and helping tenants have higher quality lives by being able to have more money in their pocket and being more financially stable because their housing is more affordable and doing that by creating value for our investors and creating value for everybody that interacts with that property, not taking it from the government who just took it from somebody else.
2: Awesome. Awesome. All right. Hey, Alex, this has been a great conversation. I know I learned a lot. I hope everyone else did too. Please tell our guests how they can get a hold of you and if you have anything else that you'd like to share with them.
0: Sure. Welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. Welcome to go to our website, V-I-L-I-C-U-S, vilicus.capital. Vilicus is Latin for steward. And I as an academic, I like Latin names. And we I like pick steward because we're stewards of other people's capital. We're having, a, I run a reading group that meets via Zoom. We read different books on management and economics and discuss them. Meets once a week, we'll be kicking off the next reading group at the end of August. And if you connect with me on LinkedIn, there's info on that. And at, if you're interested in hotel conversions, I'm doing the first ever hotel conversion masterclass with two other folks that are experts on hotel conversions. And that is July 28th to 30th in Chicago. And I've got info on my website and on LinkedIn if that's interested. if that's interesting to anyone.
2: All right. Awesome. Thanks again. We will definitely have all that information in the show notes. I appreciate you coming on and look forward to continuing to see you do big things on your journey to multifamily millions.
1: Thanks, Tim. Great to be with you in the audience. You've been listening to the Journey to Multifamily Millions podcast with host Tim Little. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave a review as well to help us reach more people like you. For more information on how you can start your journey to multifamily millions, visit ZanaInvestments.com. And remember, every journey starts with a single step and there's always more to learn.